is Thursday, the sixth day of February. Welcome to the David Glenn Show. DG not in the house. No, he is not in the transfer portal. He's at the Bill Dooley National Football Foundation fundraiser, doing DG things, meeting people, greeting people, shaking hands, and saying a lot of nice words about a lot of really nice people. Scott Hamilton in the house for DG at the opulent David Glenn Show headquarters. Going to be filling his seat for the next three hours on this Thursday, a day that I'm calling Transition Thursday. We've got to readjust our way of thinking with regards to a lot of stuff. We've got to readjust our way of thinking to a lot of different things with regards to sports at, at the local level, at the regional level, national, global, what have you. There's a lot of young men right now having to readjust their mindsets. I'm talking about the guys who signed national letters of intent yesterday. National Signing Day, part two. Don't forget, they've got that early signing day now in December. So is, it, is that what they call this? Is it the late National Signing Day? Is it the deuce? I don't know. We're going to ask Tom Luganville, college football analyst, recruiting connoisseur. He's going to join us next hour. And I'm going to ask him who the winners and losers were of National Signing Day. And then, again, young men having to adjust their minds from high school to college. It's a different breed of cat, a, literally a whole new ball game when you go up to that level of play. Also going to get Tom Luganville's take on the transfer portal. Woo! The coaches are changing their mind about it. They're starting to take a little bit of a stance. They're saying, no, can't do it. If you're going to enter the portal, then don't expect to come back. You're not showing loyalty. And that includes Virginia Tech coach Justin Fuente. He's saying, hey, if you enter the transfer portal, you're no longer a Hokie. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Justin Fuente himself enter a portal of sorts when he had his little dalliance with Baylor a few weeks ago? Tom Luganbill told me last night he's got some strong opinions on this. We'll ask him at 1.02. And here's the topic of, my, of the day. And Darren and I discussed this. By the way, Darren Vaught behind the glass doing things as he always does, orchestrating this, keeping me from driving it in the ditch whenever I'm filling in for DG. We have to kind of adjust our minds with regards to rivalries. Now, a rivalry is a rivalry forever in theory. Some rivalries will never die. I give you Duke and Carolina. Duke, number seven in the country, going to travel to Chapel Hill this weekend. Six o'clock tip-off on ESPN. Duke, nine and two, second place in the ACC. A position that we are not unaccustomed to them occupying. Carolina, however, having a very un-Carolina-like season. Three and eight in league play, 13th in the ACC. Redact the names, black them out. Look at the resumes. Does that game turn you on? Is it sexy? Is it captivating? Are you going to block off part of your coveted Saturday evening to watch a team that's 9-2 and two in league play, 7th in the country, play a team, whew, long shot to even make the NIT? Probably not, but you unredact those names and it says Duke and Carolina and suddenly it's must-see television. Because it's a rivalry. It's a true, honest-to-God rivalry for multiple reasons. And I am of the belief, and I'm not alone with this, that it's a hiccup, a speed bump. Uh, it's, it's like Haley's Comet coming around every 74 years. Is it 74 years, Darren, when, when that buzzes the earth? 74? 78? That sounds right. 
Uh, any science people, let us know. 1-800-849-2761. But it, it's, it's, it's an anomaly that both of these teams would be at this level. But it does happen every so often. Still, you watch it because it's captivating. But there are some rivalries out there that just haven't been that good for a long time, and you're beginning to wonder, do we still call it a rivalry? Do we still say they're heated rivals? And some, some that I threw out, Michigan-Notre Dame. Is it, is it a rivalry anymore? Does it really move the needle in parts south or west or east of South Bend or of Ann Arbor? I don't know. I wonder. South Carolina-Clemson. I know they're both in South Carolina. I know they both are the flagship schools of the Palmetto State. But the Tigers have dominated that on the gridiron for so long that do you consider it a rivalry? I guess it is because they're in state borders. But there are some other games out there that they just don't, they just don't do it for me anymore. Give me some examples, 1-800-849-2761. And there are also some rivalries that just aren't played anymore. First, they come to my mind, West Virginia and Pittsburgh. Thank you, conference realignment of depriving us of the backyard brawl. Those schools 90 miles apart and no longer meeting annually on the gridiron. Thank you, conference realignment, for depriving us of Texas and Texas A&M. That pregame bonfire was, was captivating. It was a big deal. There's some rivalries falling to the wayside because of the way that the leagues are now drawing at their borders. Give us some rivalries that aren't in existence anymore. Give us some rivalries that no longer have the polish, maybe needs to have a different label. 1-800-849-2761. And again, on this transition Thursday, we're going to talk a little golf. After all, the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, the Crosby Clambake. Founded in 1947 by Bing Crosby, starts today first round at Venerable Pebble Beach, Northern California. Phil Mickelson, he is in the field. He's won this thing five times. He's the defending champ, won it last year at age 48, oldest winner of this event in its long history. But he's only a 28 to 1 favorite to repeat that title. He's off to a rough start in 2020, back to back missed cuts for the first time in his career. And they're talking about the possibility of him missing the U.S. Open. Phil Mickelson in the U.S. Open is as certain as death and taxes. Hey, let me rephrase that. Phil Mickelson finishing second in the U.S. Open is as certain as death and taxes. But he might need an exemption to crack the field this year. And he says, no, I'm not going to take it. So he's going to have to start playing better. Will that begin this week? I don't know. You have to have a different type of mindset for this event because it is a pro-am. 156 pros, 156 amateurs. There is a Joe Blow for every elite player in the field. And, Darren, here you go. My pick to win the team, the team part of this. Are you ready? Tony Romo, Jim Furyk. Tony Romo can play. Jim Furyk can still play, even at an advanced age. I'm going to give that. Bill Murray in the field. With D.A. points. God bless D.A. points. He's not in it to win it. <laughs> He's, now, here, here you is... You just got to submit to a, a really good time if you're playing with Bill Murray, right? He's giving you some side money so he can clown around donating it. Yo, by the way, they, these people do not pay to play in this event. They make a donation to a charity. I'm sure it's a sizable donation, a year's salary for years truly. But that's how it works. Now, here's the group, the pairing that I'm wondering if, if I would want to be involved with or I want to stay far away from because there's just weird. Steve Stricker, 
son of Wisconsin, very reserved, as Midwestern as you can get with Toby Keith. How's that going to go? You think they might talk a little politics? I, I don't know. Why, uh, Toby Keith in a, in a pro-am. I'm not feeling it. Larry the Cable Guy. Larry the Cable Guy is playing Pebble Beach. Is that... Is he listed as Larry the Cable Guy yes, or actually by yes, his full name? Yes, on the PGA Tour website. His it's name Larry is Larry the Cable Guy. It's not the, the, well, it probably is the, but I say the, the Cable Guy, proper <laughs> pronunciation. And then here's one more that caught my name. And I actually was texting with a participant in this last night, um, Ben Sutton. He's playing with Harold Varner III. He's, he's stoked. But I also wonder if Alfonso Ribeiro is stoked. Carlton Banks. He's playing in it. <laughs> He's playing in it. So I, I want to see about it. I wonder if he does the Carlton if he makes a, a long putt. Huey Lewis. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to monitor that throughout the, throughout the beginning of the show. And also, I've got some thoughts on how Pebble Beach is marginalized by the PGA Tour. It's the best asset it has on the actual tour, not, not including Augusta National, which is not part of the tour. I've got some thoughts on what they need to be doing with that. NCAA hoops tonight. No ACC games, but some top 25 action. Cal at number 24, Colorado, 8 o'clock kickoff. Southern Cal at Arizona, 9 o'clock tip ESPN2. Tulane at number 25, Houston, 9 o'clock tip ESPNU. And then Loyola Marymount, 25.5 point favorites at Gonzaga. It's going to start at 11 o'clock and a bunch of in-state games that we're going to touch upon. And we're also going to touch upon NASCAR. We are only 10 days away from the Daytona 500, keeping with our transition theme. NASCAR's Cup Series goes from 0 to 180 on, the, on the February 16th with the beginning of the season via the Daytona 500. Opens the year as it has every year since 1982. How is this season going to be different from last year? What can we expect in that race? And what are some other things we need to keep on our radar we're going to ask DW, Daryl Waltrip. He's going to join us at 202, three-time NASCAR Cup champ. He is now the lead commentator for NASCAR on Fox. I'm going to ask him all those questions, and I'm also going to ask him about making movies. Do you realize how many times there's been a NASCAR movie and it's included Daryl Waltrip? Every time. Every time. I had a hard time. I had difficulty going through IMDb NASCAR movies of the past 35 years and not seeing Daryl Waltrip's name. He's got an IMDb page. That makes him legit. I'm going to ask him if he also has an Actors Guild card. Because, you know, Darren, and I'm going to get into this, I like NASCAR movies except for one. And you really like it. It's my favorite. I, I, We've had this conversation. Yeah, I've had this multiple. I've had this conversation about you with other people. And, yes, I've, I've, I've talked down about you with your love of this, <laughs> this Days of Thunder's god-awful movie. I'm going to ask Daryl Waltrip if he prefers it or my favorite, Stroker Ace, when he joins us at 2.02. And finally, keeping with our transition theme, adjusting our mindset, Pete Rose, he wants Major League Baseball to adjust its mindset. He says, hey, I need to be reinstated. The time has come. These guys in Houston just cheating, cheating in such an egregious way, stealing signs, using cameras, the buzzer thing, which may or may not have happened. Pete says, man, I've suffered enough. What they did is no worse than what I was doing. I want back in baseball. So he's made another appeal to Major League Baseball in order to get reinstatement. Can it happen? Will it happen? We're going to ask Don Van Nata Jr. 
of ESPN at 2.32. He's the host and executive producer of a show called Backstory, which just recently debuted with an episode on Pete Rose and Shoeless Joe Jackson. And it was actually fascinating how the case of Pete Rose impacted Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson, in Don Van Nata's estimation, was about to be exonerated or at least welcomed back into the fold with regards to Major League Baseball when Pete got in trouble. It stopped the process for Joe Jackson. The focus went on Pete. They put Pete out in purgatory. And Joe Jackson kind of put off to the side. He would be in the Hall of Fame now if the process had continued as it was going. At least that's according to Don Van Notta Jr. I'm going to ask him at 232 what his thoughts are going forward. Is it time for Pete to get in? And will he finally make it into the Hall of Fame? 232, Don Venato Jr. And we've got a lot to discuss with regards to the NFL. What an offseason this will be for the Carolina Panthers. So many questions. Questions that are answered that only create two more questions. And it keeps multiplying. They've named the coaching staff. Matt Rule has his coaching staff in Charlotte now. How's that going to shape up? Only one guy has any kind of NFL experience, and it's very limited. Will it be enough to get the Panthers moving forward, or are they staring at a complete rebuild? We'll explore that. We're going to take your phone calls, 1-800-849-2761. You're listening to The David Glenn Show. We're just getting started. Roy Williams, welcome back to The David Glenn Show. Last year, 2 chains came walking by, and he reached his hand down and uh, shook my hand and said, 2 chains." And about five seconds after he walked away, I said, I missed a great opportunity. I should have said three rings. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it here on the David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Got a little breaking news, courtesy of our friends at the Greensboro News and Record, Jeff Millis reporting. That NCANT, a founding member of the MEAC back in 1971, preparing to announce tomorrow that it's leaving for the Big South. And of course, this is pending approval of AT&T, A&T's Board of Trustees. They're going to meet tomorrow morning. And if that approval happens, AT&T, A&T rather, is going to hold a news conference at 10 o'clock. And it seems, Darren, that the radio gods have smiled upon us because we were discussing rivalries or former rivalries or dormant might be a better word rivalries because of conference realignment and you very astutely nice job pointed out what does this do for the A&T central rivalry so there you go and interesting to note that uh the last time a they would make 2021 A&T's last season in the MEAC, the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, and it's a league with 11 full members, and it's historically black colleges and universities. But the Big South has 11 members. Interesting. And, and this would be the first HBC. There will be two HBCUs in the Big South, A&T and Hampton, according to this article. So that's, that's, that's significant in and of itself, I think, restructuring – the landscape of that with some HBCUs. I keep wondering what's going to happen to Winston-Salem State. They were poised, I thought, to move back up a few years ago under Connell Maynard, but then kind of lost its footing. And I've always been of the mind that that's, a, that's an institution waiting to do something really big, just needs 
needs a little bit of luck and a little bit of a boost, I think, for that to happen. We were talking about college basketball. Louisville beat Wake Forest last night, 86-76. And Andrew Carter, the outstanding reporter for the Raleigh News and Observer, Charlotte Observer, is going to join us in about, uh, about 10 minutes. He had a fantastic piece yesterday on Wake Forest basketball, specifically what in the world has happened to Wake Forest basketball. And here's the headline. And I'm quoting now the headline from the Charlotte Observer. Quote, Inside the slow death of Wake Forest basketball, a motorcycle, silence, and stubborn hope. And I know from my years at the Winston-Salem Journal and Triad Sports that that is spot on. It's a program in denial for years. Are they finally figuring it out? Are they taking off the blinders and realizing there's a, there's a world out there that it's passed its by? I, interesting to note out of this. Since not, for between 1990-2010, only three other schools won more games in the ACC than Wake Forest, Duke, Carolina, and Maryland. It's a far cry from that now. This season alone, Deacons have lost four of the last five, seven of nine, 10 and 12 overall, and tied with Miami for last place in the ACC, three and nine in league play. Danny Manning, many thought would be gone after last year. No, back for one more season. And that was primarily an economic move. That was a financial move by Wake Forest to bring him back. He's tethered to, I do believe, $18 million contract, $18 million buyout, something thereabouts. It's a private school, so we'll never know for certain the actual financials of that deal. But it made sense for them to bring him back from a dollars and cents standpoint. But from an on-court standpoint, has there been that much improvement? No, not really. Is it all Danny's fault? Did he take over something that was already broken and couldn't be repaired unless you absolutely destroyed it? It all goes back to the sad passing of Skip Prosser, 2007. And I remember where I was at when I found out Skip had died, and it was heartbreaking. I was a young reporter covering the ACC when Skip first came to Winston-Salem. I called and said, can I get a few minutes? They arranged it. I ended up spending two hours with him. He took me around to everybody at the basketball facility, introduced me to everyone. Then he spent time telling me all about himself and his family and what his vision was, and it was great. And every time you saw him after that, he remembered you, he'd talk about you, usually have something really witty to say, and he made you feel good. And oh, by the way, he also won a lot of basketball games. Passed away in 07, Dino Gaudio, assistant, took over and kept it going a little bit, but some off-the-court issues ended up doing him in. Ron Wellman, then the athletic director of Wake Forest, decided to go in a different direction, brought in, brought in Jeff Bezdelic, and well... Things haven't been right since. And and I, I'm not here to pile on anybody. I'm not going to pile on Jeff Bizdelic. I think Jeff Bizdelic is a good guy. I think he's a bad fit for a college basketball coach. X's and O's wise, Jeff Bizdelic is as good as anyone. I saw him out coach Mike Krzyzewski one night at Joel Coliseum. It was a he was a maestro changing up defenses and so forth. Coach K couldn't keep up. But when it came to managing people, when it came to managing young people and organizing a roster, that's where he lacked. He shines at the NBA level as a top-flight assistant, able to do a lot of schematic things. And then hiring Danny Manning, it just hasn't panned out as expected. Yes, Danny Manning is a guy with North Carolina roots, and he has a resume unlike few others. 
Olympic gold medal, I do believe. Did Danny win a gold medal? Did they win in 88? They didn't win in 88, did they? Will, intern Will, can you re research that for me? I know he was the number one overall draft pick. I know he had a fantastic college career. Injuries kept him from fully reaching his potential at the NBA level, but still, he's Danny Manning. Everybody knew the name. National champion. But coaching-wise, he hadn't done a whole lot. He had two good weeks at Tulsa before being hired and expected to compete in the deep end of the pool, that being the ACC. Wasn't the 88 Olympics the uh, USSR? The uh, There was a scandal was on the, the last play. That was way back. Okay. Was, well, anyway. I like you that you have some sense of history. It was 1972. Okay. And those guys threw their gold medals into the uh, – into the river That's or right. something. That was way back. Yeah, I, I think 88, they did not win the gold medal because that's what prompted the dream team. Right. They said, we can't have this. We've got to you know, move forward. And they, they created the dream team. I, I do believe. And that was Seoul. I think it was Seoul, North Korea. I can't believe I know this much about the Olympics in 1988. It was a long time ago. You weren't even alive. <laughs> oh, wow. It's true. I need to shut up. Oh, by the way, uh, I met my... Uh, ice skating alter ego a couple weeks ago i went and visited with him scott hamilton nice yeah i'll fill you in on that during the break but as i, I digress we're talking about wake forest we're talking about the demise of wake forest basketball where does it need to be right now where should it be right now where's it going we're going to ask andrew carter on the other side you're listening to the david glenn show the head devil David Cutcliffe. You guys have a unique ability to, to just do it right. You know, all the fans are always going to defend their programs, and they should. Sometimes we all make somebody in another program mad or angry, but you guys are very fair to everybody. The David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Our next guest covers all things around the world, but particularly sports for the Charlotte Observer, the Raleigh News and Observer. Andrew Carter, welcome aboard. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to have you, sir. And uh, before we dive too deep into your latest piece, can you kind of uh, tell us how your, how your new job is going? You've transitioned from being a longtime beat writer to kind of a man about town, man about the state type guy. A man about town. I like that. Uh, but no, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate and have a great opportunity to branch out. And, you know, the hope is and the goal is to go out and find interesting stories and try to spend some time on them uh, and really, you know, try to dive into some different things and, you know, really get to know my subject matter well and spend time reporting and writing. And so, I've been lucky enough to have that opportunity uh, for a while, and I've been focused on sports, back in sports, really for the past couple months, uh, going around the state and, and doing different things. Did a Matt Rule story when he was hired by the Panthers. Did a, uh, a Roy Williams story when we thought that he was about to surpass uh, Dean Smith that wound up taking a little bit longer than people, I think, would have expected, but went up to Black Mountain and kind of retraced his roots and of course, went out to Winston-Salem a week and a half ago and spent some time trying to figure out what's going on with Wake Forest basketball. Well, that was 
what I was wondering, what in the world's going on, and what what was it, though, about Wake Forest basketball that got your attention? And as you know, I spent a lot of time there. I monitored that program for years. But it's always felt like, at least during my tenure, it was kind of an outlier. You had the Triangle Schools and, oh, by the way, Wake Forest as the fourth school of the Big Four. What what finally made you put up your antenna and go out there and say, what what the heck's happened? Yeah, and I agree with you. I think it is a bit of an outlier just geographically speaking. Uh, you know, I don't know. Unfortunately, it's probably not the right word, but it's kind of removed from some of the major uh, media markets in the state. Back in the day, I grew up, of course, in Raleigh, uh, and I can remember a time when the NNO actually, I think, had a Wake Forest beat writer pretty much when I was uh, in college in the early 2000s. I want to say Lorenzo Perez, uh, who worked at the NNO for a long time, was covering Wake Forest. You know, the Charlotte Observer used to get up there a lot and cover those guys. Uh, and I've, you know, I've been kind of interested in that story that I wrote, you know, really for a while. Uh, you know, like I said, growing up in North Carolina uh, back in the 1990s, that was uh, a great program. You know, obviously the home to Tim Duncan, uh, Randolph Childress. We all remember the 1995 ACC tournament. Uh, you know, Dave Odom was a great coach. who did a lot of great things there. And, you know, I think it's interesting anytime you can kind of examine a program like that that has had a lot of success and then they just kind of drop off the map. Uh, and so I just thought it was an interesting story. We haven't done a whole lot with Wake Forest at the NNO or in Charlotte, really. Uh, it's been kind of a forgotten program a little bit around the state and especially nationally. I mean, it used to be a national program. It wasn't all that long ago that you know, they were ranked number one in the country uh, a decade ago, um, you know, competing at a high level. And so I thought it was you know, worthwhile trying to go over there at least for a game and try to take in the atmosphere. There's not much of an atmosphere there, <laughs> sadly. And that was one of the most striking things. You know, they still do that thing with the motorcycle and they, you know, they try to hype up the crowd by having the demon Deacon drive in on that thing. And I mean, man, I just thought it was kind of sad and there just a lack of energy. It, it seems to me, and I guess it's obvious to everyone, perhaps it's even redundant to mention it, that the demise of Wake Forest basketball started with the death of Skip Prosser. But what happened along the way to, to keep Wake Forest from getting back on the road or even or perhaps staying on the road that Skip had put them on or even before him, Dave Odom? Because people forget Dave Odom took over a pretty bad program, also got it headed in the right direction. What did they fail to learn from those two coaches? You know, I think it's just the old cliche of a perfect storm of just, you know, events coming together to really sort of put them in a bad place. I think it made a lot of sense at the time, you know, after Skip's tragic death in 2007 to you know, put Dino Gaudio in the position that he was in or wound up being in. He was a longtime assistant and a prosser. Obviously, he knew the program. He knew the kids that they were bringing in recruiting-wise, uh, you know, I thought that was kind of an obvious move at the time. Let this guy uh, have a shot at it. Uh, on the court, they did pretty well. You know, they made the tournament two out of his three years. Uh, that was the last time that Wake Forest reached the number one ranking, which I think in Gaudio's last season. Uh, they didn't do particularly well in the postseason. Uh, but still, I mean, they would take that today in a heartbeat, uh, obviously. But, you know, you saw some of these cracks starting to emerge uh, I think off the court with some of the kids, maybe they brought in who had some questions around their character. Uh, obviously, there was the allegation of a sexual assault that emerged and became public in 2011. 
when a woman came forward and alleged that this happened back in 2009 during Gaudio's. And so I think behind the scenes, you know, there was starting to be some trepidation from some folks in the administration, from people around the program about what kind of guys he was bringing in. Uh, I think that led Ron Wellman, the athletic director at the time, to make the decision that he did eventually to fire Gaudio. Uh, and then, you know, after that, it was just a disastrous hire to bring in Jeff Bezelik, and we can all say hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, you know, but there was even some questioning of that hire back then. Uh, Wellman and Bezelik were close, or kind of friends. You know, you have to wonder how much of a due diligence Wellman really did in terms of trying to bring in the best guy. Was he trying to hire the best guy, or just kind of hire, you know, make a safe hire maybe, and, and bring in somebody that he was familiar with? Um, you know, and then. Really, the program has not recovered from that. They've been kind of in this spiral since. Uh, and then Danny Manning comes in after that. And again, not really a proven guy. Uh, you know, you can make the argument. I really didn't explore this in the story. I probably should have that Manning was hired based off maybe a, a two or three week stretch where his team got hot at Tulsa and he turned that into an ACC job. It is kind of strange, though, that Wellman made really good football hires. You know, Jim Crow worked out really well. Uh, Dave Clawson obviously has done really well. Uh, but on the flip side of that, his basketball hires have not worked out well at all. Yeah, it is incredible. And, and, and Andrew, it almost makes me think they're knee-jerk reactions with basketball. Like he has to he has to swing for the fences when it comes to basketball because that was one of the crown jewels of the Wake Forest Athletic Department. He either went too safe with a Jeff Bizdelic or he went maybe too big, too splashy, getting a guy with Danny Manning who, who had a name but not much on a resume. You're right. He did have that name recognition. You know, I think maybe there was some allure at the time for Wake hiring a guy with North Carolina roots. Uh, of course, Danny grew up or did not grow up, but spent a lot of his childhood uh, in Greensboro before going to Lawrence, Kansas for his senior year in high school and, of course, later playing with Kansas. You know, so Manning had some history in North Carolina. He was a big time. Uh, name in this state. You know, I think that was attractive to Wake Forest, but. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of experience. You know, he was at Tulsa for two years. He was assistant coach before that. Uh, you know, I think it was fair to question even then, you know, did this guy really understand what he was getting into? I spoke with Dino Gaudio for this story last week, uh, and he was pretty critical of the Jeff Bitzelic era, as you might expect. Uh, I think there's still some lingering hurt there on behalf of Dino after what happened to him. Uh, but he basically characterized the situation that Manning walked into as basically a five or six year rebuilding job. And here Manning is in the sixth year, uh, you know, and it still looks like a lengthy rebuilding job for whoever might come in after this, because I think we can all safely assume uh, that probably his tenure is going to be coming to an end here in about a month. We're joined by Andrew Carter, Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer. You can follow him on Twitter at underscore Andrew Carter and Andrew that seemed to be a foregone conclusion the deeper we got into last season that Danny Manning and Wake Forest would be parting ways at the end of the 2018-2019 campaign but as you alluded to pointed out he's still here he's still coaching even though he went 65 and 93 during his first five seasons what was Wake Forest's primary argument for bringing Danny back was it 100% financial or were there other factors in play such as uh, Wellman's retirement? 
Yeah, I think it's both those things. I think that's, you know, 1A or 1B tied at the top, whatever, you know, however you want to rank them. I think those are the two major decisions. I think a big part of it that can't be overlooked is the fact that Wellman was retiring. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that he wanted to burden the new AD with either a, you know, a coaching search immediately when he's, co- when he's coming in uh, or burden the next guy who, of course, wound up to be John Curry with, you know, a guy that he didn't hire. <laughs> You know, I think that was sort of the thinking, uh, you know, really they were kind of in a pickle at that point. You have your AD who's about to step down. You have this coach who would not perform well. Uh, you know, what do you do in that situation? You know, I think it would have been an obvious choice uh, in normal circumstances to part ways with Danny and say, hey, it's not working out. We've given you five years. Uh, but that was not really a normal situation, and so I kind of get it. And then, of course, there's the financial constraints given Manning's reported buyout. You know, Wake Forest has never confirmed this on the record. Uh, you know, I read some stories from the Winston-Salem Journal. Winston-Salem Journal, Connor O'Neill, who does a great job covering those guys, wrote about this last year. But when they announced that Manning was going to come back, you know, they really tried to get these guys on the record about the buyout situation. Uh, and they wouldn't comment on it, but reportedly it's an $18 million guaranteed buyout. Uh, which is just insane. Uh, and given the fact that they won't comment, Wake Forest is obviously a private school. There's no real great way to get the records associated with it. Uh, we don't know if that's, uh, you know, what that buyout figure might be now after a year, if it's changed or not. But still, nonetheless, I mean, if that's accurate, $18 million, I mean, that's a tremendous financial burden for anybody, uh, but especially an athletic department like Wake Forest. What What is Wake – and, again, I'm not going to speculate on who would be a good fit as a coach or anything like that. As far as I'm concerned, Danny Manning's still the coach until we're told differently. But what, what I am curious about, though, Andrew, is – you going in and inspecting everything with this program, checking out what they're trying to achieve, do you get a sense that they're they're doing everything they can to make up ground, to perhaps improve the facilities? Uh, do, do you get a sense that the community is engaged, or are they doing more things to get the community engaged? Well, <laughs> I think there's very vastly different answers to those, those questions. Yes, I do think that they're doing a lot the university is in terms of trying to uh you know catch up in terms of facilities you know they just they did just build uh and open a brand new basketball complex the shaw basketball complex which is named after uh an atlanta businessman who contributed five million dollars to the project uh and that thing is really immaculate i mean it's beautiful it's four stories they've got new basketball offices in there for the men's and women's teams uh you've got a basketball specific workout facility uh, you've got this, got two new practice gyms in there with this really high-tech technology. Um, you know, one of the things I have in there, I got a tour of this when I went out there a week and a half ago, um, but they had these sensors. Actually, when kids are in there getting shots up uh, during practice or even if they come in after practice, you know, they have these sensors that tell them the arc of their shot. They can, you know, it's like real-time feedback. If their shot is too flat, they know that. You know, put some more arc on it. If it's too much arc, they know that. Uh, so they had this really high-tech technology that's pretty cool. You know, they've really tried to upgrade the facilities. It is a beautiful uh, building that they opened back in September. Uh, but then to the other question that you just asked, though the community is buying in, I mean, I think people have just checked out. Uh, and that's basically the first little bit of how I began that story the other the other day that, that posted online yesterday. You know, I went out there 
when they played Virginia. I mean, Wake Forest, Virginia, those are two old-school ACC teams. They've played uh, a ton of times. They go back decades and decades. Virginia, of course, is a reigning national champion. You know, I thought there might be some interest in that game, and I couldn't have been more wrong. I was running actually a little bit late, driving to Winston-Salem from Raleigh. I was worried about hitting traffic. There was no traffic. I mean, I got there maybe 45 minutes before game time. There was no traffic. I'm walking into the building. There's still no traffic. I walked out about 15, 20 minutes before tip-off. There was still no traffic. Uh, One thing that really struck me was, like, there were no scalpers outside. You know, like, I'm used to going to games at the Smith Center, even going to games at NC State, which, you know, NC State is not exactly lighting things on fire. There's always scalpers outside PNC. You know, even the scalpers have given up at Wake Forest, uh, and I thought that was pretty striking. And then the inside of Lawrence Stroll Coliseum was even kind of more depressing than the outside, just not much buzz. And that's why, you know, I try to make that comparison with what they do, you know, bringing in the mascot on this motorcycle, trying to pump up the crowd, and it's just sort of a very sad scene. I was at Joel Coliseum 2000-2001 season when they upset Kansas, and you talk about a zoo. That place was insane. But to your point, I've also been there when it's been Echo Valley, and you could literally sit there and count how many people are in the place. And it 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 is sad. You know, it was like a high school game a little bit, especially during the first 10 minutes. I think Wake Forest scored four points in the first 10 minutes of that game. They wound up rallying. It went to overtime. Uh, They did lose. But the first 10 minutes, it was like a high school game. I mean, it was quiet. You could hear the cheerleaders from across the court doing their cheers. Uh, you know, you could hear the coaches talking. You could hear the squeaks uh, on the floor from the sneakers. Um, you know, just a very sad atmosphere compared to what that place was for a long time. He's Andrew Carter, the Raleigh News and Observer, Charlotte Observer. You can follow him on Twitter at underscore Andrew Carter. Andrew, before we let you go, what's your next story? Oh, boy, I'm working on... A few. I'm actually, you know, I'm working on a sad story uh, that I'm hoping to have in time for the ACC tournament just about Anthony Grundy, uh, who tragically passed away back in November. That's one thing I'm working on. Uh, and then have a couple other, you know, longer-term projects that hopefully I can make some headway on, and then we'll see. All right. Check him out on Twitter. Check him out at the Raleigh n or Charlotte Observer. Andrew, it's always a pleasure, buddy. Hope to catch up with you soon. Likewise, Scott. Thank you so much for having me, man. All right, appreciate it. It's Andrew Carter, writer extraordinaire. And I, the, the biggest takeaway I had from our talk with Andrew Carter, even the scalpers have given up. Wow. But, you know, it, the last decade or so, though, the hottest ticket was, you know, when Duke would come to town, when UNC would come to town. Those were always bigger tickets, and it was shocking, absolutely shocking how many times you go into Joel Coliseum and you would see more visiting colors than you would the black and gold. Now it's Echo Valley, according to Andrew Carter. That's that's it, what a, what a quick demise. I mean, a decade's not a long time. It's not. It's not a long time. Skip's been dead. This is his twelfth season, I believe, since the passing of Skip Prosser. And to just drop to this. Where do they go from here, though? Obviously, they're doing the right things. They're investing in the program. They're upgrading the facilities, but they've got to do a lot to kind of scrub scrub the goodwill back to bring it back to prominence in at least its own city, let alone the region. You're listening to The David Glenn Show. I believe. 
believe it is the NBA's turn in the line dance. And I don't think they can dance. I don't think they can dance as well as DG dances, and I'm only a three or a four. The David Glenn Show, weekdays at noon. Closing out hour one of the David Glenn Show on Thursday. North Carolina basketball tonight. Asheville hosting SC Upstate, 6 o'clock tip-off. Then 7 o'clock, Campbell at Winthrop. ECU playing host to Central Florida. Elon, Trash Coliseum to play UNCW. UT Arlington at Appalachian State. Good year so far for Appalachian State. 12 and 11, 6 and 6 in the Sun Belt. And then, of course, Hampton at High Point. The Millis Athletic Center. Tubby. Tubbs. That's your guy. It is. Going to get that rolling in High Point. ESPN Plus. ESPN Plus. Those are all 7 o'clock tip-offs. And got some action going on at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, a.k.a. the Crosby Clambake. Harold Varner III of Gastonia. He's tied for the lead. He's tied with Sung Kang and Greg Chalmers at three under through eight holes. So we'll monitor that throughout the rest of the day. Remember, 156 pros paired with 156 amateurs. Very, very unique event. And we're also going to put out an APB for Jordan Birch's paperwork. Who is Jordan Birch? He is the number eight recruit in the country. He's a five-star defensive tackle in Columbia, South Carolina. Has twice, twice committed to play for the South Carolina Gamecocks. But they got no paperwork. Where is it? His national letter of intent, MIA, in the Palmetto State. Nobody can get an answer. What is going on? Will Muschamp, are you going to cry shenanigans? I'd be digging that up because here's where it gets really weird, Darren. Will Muschamp's son, it's this kid's high school teammate. <laughs> I got a feeling he ain't going to South Carolina. I got a feeling that this kid, who shows up at signing day, signs something, but there's no letter of intent, I got a feeling he's going somewhere else. We're going to ask Tom Luganville on the other side. I would never be so competitive, so childish, that I would actually keep track of my record as a coach in youth soccer. I mean, that would be ridiculous. So when I think about my 78 wins, two losses, and four ties, <laughs> not that I was keeping track or anything. Stay with us on the David Glenn Show.